Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Connor, and welcome to this week's episode of Intelligence Squared Business. Today, we're joined by Tim Fendley, founder and creative director of Applied Information Group. And he spoke to Linda Yu about how from offices to restaurants, buses to trains, the pandemic has opened up the space for us to think about what kind of cities we want to live in. It's a really fascinating conversation, and we hope you enjoy it. Now, let's go to the episode. We know of a number of initiatives where some big businesses are sitting there thinking, well, what do we need our offices for? We've done the online communities a bit and there's a limits to them. They're great. We can have friends on the other side of the planet and we can stay in touch. But I also need my local community. That requires physical spaces. Welcome to Intelligence Squared Business. Hello, I'm Linda Yu, an economist and broadcaster. Today, we're discussing designing cities for a post-pandemic world. My guest is Tim Fendley, founder and creative director of Applied Information Group. He founded Applied in 2003 to address navigation and movement issues. Their projects include cities as well as campuses, such as for Google and Princeton and museums, such as the Met and the National Gallery. Tim is an information designer with over 25 years experience creating system architecture for some of the world's most important cities. Welcome, Tim. And tell me firstly, what does an information designer do and what prompted you to start your firm? (laughs) Hi there, Linda. Um, uh, What does an information designer do? I'll answer your second question first. I've always been fascinated by complexity. The more complex a problem, the more I'm kind of like interested. And when I got a chance to work for a whole city, I thought, well, there's nothing more complex than this. So as an information designer, you're, you're really designing information. You're designing the way information appears and the way that information is delivered to people. Uh, there's a lot of information designers work in the digital realm, but we work in the city realm, in the physical space. So how do places explain themselves? How, do they, how are they easy to use or, or not so easy to use, as is often the case? Before we kick off and go into some of those um, uh, areas, we hear the term smart city a lot. It'd be really helpful to hear what that means. It's it's a very overused term to be um, candid. Um, There's a lot of um, technology, network, infrastructure businesses that are using the term smart city to describe Um, cables and networks and technologies to 
make better waste disposal systems, etc. So it's, it's, it can be viewed as an incredibly three-dimensional term um, to describe a lot of things of the cities of the future. The, the smart cities that we're interested in is actually the, the use of the word in terms of it being clever, being actually quite smart. It's actually, it knows what it is and it can describe it carefully. So that's maybe the, uh, if you had a Maslow's hierarchy of needs of a smart city, it's a higher up at the top part of the smart city. It's, it's less of the infrastructure to actually deliver it. That's really interesting. I like that. Smart cities. You actually care that it's clever. Mm, yes. Well, and, and, and I also say I'm polite. Humans, humans' relationship with technology is like our relationship with people. Your, your phone is, can be impolite to you. It can say, oh, no network. You, you can't have this. And you're, you feel like affronted, don't you? You feel like, oh, what are you doing? And because we're humans, we behave with technology like they're humans. We call ships, she's, we, um, we have these relationships. We can't help it. That's part of being human. And a city is another one of those things that we have a relationship with. Um, sure, you've been to a city that can be impenetrable. Um, I remember walking around Tokyo looking for a restaurant. Unbelievable. Like, that was an impossible task. You know, and I felt, I felt Tokyo was, I felt the people in Tokyo were incredibly warm and welcoming, but I felt the city was this, I don't want to know you place. It was like, you're not allowed here. Um, you're not from here. Um, I felt um, a real foreigner there. And that isn't necessarily what a city, the people who are running a city want to portray. So it's all about relationships and emotions. That's the way humans are. So we're very interested in how do you create that, the right culture, the right emotional response. One of my biggest uh, travel accomplishments was making it into Tokyo from the airport using public transport. I felt a huge sense of achievement. Oh, well done. <laughs> um, Great. Let's let's talk about. Um, maybe it'd be helpful to talk about one of your projects to get a sense of your work in terms of movement of people in cities. So tell me what you did with London and TfL. Uh, so about, I think it, it was before the Olympics was won by London. We we basically approached a number of organisations to say that the last mile in London was hard work. Um, the tube system, the bus system had been really um, rejuvenated and um, working really well. You know, remember, it was like a one pound a ticket, go anywhere kind of systems. It was it was this. How do we simplify the bus network so people use the bus more? It really was working. But our observation was that the last mile is um, not very easy. Um, and, you know, when you come out of the tube station, then how do you find your restaurant? How do you find the cinema? How do you find your friend? Um, and with work we'd done in some other cities, we kind of thought we had some ways of doing this. So we approached some organisations. We managed to do a study. We uncovered um, some very interesting observations that in central London, for example, there were 36 different sign systems for pedestrians that was being used by about 2.7% of people. So then nearly all of them were a waste of money. That's because they just, they were disconnected. So our idea was London needs one walking system. It's kind of obvious on the roads, okay? You know, when 1908, I think it was, there were very few cars. 
But each local authority had their own roads. Um, a system for agreeing how the roads will behave, what is a giveaway, etc., was agreed across the country. A road sign system in its basic form was agreed back in 1908 because everybody realised that you might be travelling in my council area, my city, but you're going to be driving to another one and it needs to be the same. So there's a logic there. And that ended up in, in a quite amazing document in the 1960s, 1960s with the Warburgs Committee, our new road sign system designed by an information designer or a team of information designers, Margaret Calvert and uh, Jock Kinnear. That road sign system is, is consistent throughout the country for good reason. And our observation was, well, walking in London really is no different. It just, London needs a walking system that crosses borough boundaries. And remember, London's got 32 boroughs, TfL, GLA. It's got 20, it had at that time, 24 business improvement districts. It's got seven, eight large greater states. It's got all these layers and competing jurisdictions that was creating, to be frank, a mess that people weren't engaging with. So we had this idea, we proposed it, it, um, it unified, it took a number of years of lobbying to unify these groups, um, great support from the Green Party and the GLA. Ken Livingston put, I think it was 25 million behind it and said, yep, let's do this. We did a prototype, we tested it in Oxford Street. We did all the information around Bond Street as a, as a trial. We removed 44 pieces of street information and put 19 in because obviously street clutter was a, a, a potential uh, criticism of why you do this. Our view was it's not clutter if it gets used. And uh, that got tested. You don't do anything at TfL without it being tested and proven and stats. And it got tested independently. It really, really worked. I think within six weeks, 65% of people were aware of it, things like this. And it improved journey times by 16%. And these stats enabled further funding. Everything happens in levels of permission. Um, and then it was developed into a system for the whole city. And there's a lot more complexity to how it's designed and how it works. I could, um, I could bore you for hours on that if, um, if you've got it. <laughs> I think that was absolutely fascinating. And I actually remember when the signage improved. You know, memory is quite emotive. Like you remember things that, um, you know, your perception of how of ease of walking. I do remember that before the Olympics. Well, one of the drivers was, um, Ken Livingston said, I want London to be the best walking city in the world. And T I remember working with TfL and they were kind of like, what on earth does he mean by that? I quite like a leader saying a kind of an unreasonable deadline, like an unreasonable target. Like, you go and tell me what that means, but strive for it. The other element that was driving it was that actually walking in London in 2005-07, somewhere around there, there was a study showing that walking in central London was reducing. And we want, a, we want the world's most walkable city and we've got reducing walking environmental emergency etc were issues then for the GLA um, and since legible London has gone in walking in L London central London has increased by five percent and if you think of the billions of journeys that's that's not all because of legible London but that's um, that's a, a, a we're, we're moving the needle in the right direction Mm. So speaking of walking, um, the pandemic has changed, obviously, all our lives and, and behaviour. And one of the things that might change is people want to walk or to cycle um, more um, to their work. So just um, kind of 
you know, describe for me um, how um, this post-pandemic world, how that will affect um, the way that we travel and the implication for urban spaces, how that might be configured um, in the future. I think the first thing is that uh, people, human beings are are locked into habits and behaviours more than you realise. The, can you look at the, where are the silver linings in the COVID, in the pandemic? Um, I think the line, the fact that it's challenged our habits, it's challenged, do we need to be in that office at seven in the morning every day? No, we don't. Do I need to drive into work? Well, no. Do I, could I cycle in? Um, how many people I've spoken to have gone, gone, well, I've never tried to cycle in and I did because I wanted to avoid everybody. I found it really, it was fun. I, I enjoyed it. I'm getting, you know, it gives me a workout and, you know, and it's okay. And I never thought I could do that. I've, I've heard a number of people say that to me. So what the pandemic's done is allow us to, to rethink, to reset. How our city evolves to changing needs then, then will happen slower. Um, because changing the streetscape is a long, laborious and very expensive um, process. And transport planning has a checkered history of predict and provide. You know, it's constantly predicting that the road use will go up, therefore let's provide it, when in actuality providing it actually it means it grows. Um, and it should be the same for walking and cycling. The more that we can provide walking, cycling and transit. And let's not um, beat around the bush here. The future here for the planet is much more self-powered and shared modes of transport. The the use of street space, the use of um, energy, um, the health benefits, the pollution benefits, everything is in that right direction. It's it's not going to stop private vehicles. It never should. It's a matter of when you're doing a commute, then it's finding the best way to do it. Which we're emotional creatures, we're habits, we work on habits. We, we don't make decisions based on logic. Ask, ask any brand about why people are buying their products and it isn't necessarily logic. Um, and it's the same for your choices of transport. Um, but how do we get more logical decisions to be made? We've got to make them more interesting. We've got to make them easier. I mean, using a train, it, it, I mean, I saw a wonderful, I can't remember the programme, but it was, it was actually trying to get some people who had always driven to work to use the train and it followed them on their journey and they were horrified by how much they had to think how much they had to calculate how much they had to work out when the train was going is it going to be late um why is is this one cancelled how do i work out this ticket thing um all of that was overhead that was limiting their use of that transit and they were like well this is why i'm never going to travel transit I'm going to go back in my car. And because it was easy. Does it cost them more? Yes. Does it cost the planet more? Yes. Does it cost air quality more? Yes. But it was easier. That's human, I'm afraid. So what we've got to do is we've got to compete by making transit, walking, cycling, all these modes really, really easy. And we're not quite there yet because you've got to connect them. And that's the the hardest thing to do. The pandemic has also raised... Um, I think, implications about spaces uh, within buildings and not just cities. So tell me about um, where you think the post-pandemic world in terms of buildings and spaces. I know you've obviously done work with museums and campuses about moving people through 
How do you think that will look different in the future? Well, we are doing some work on office spaces as well. And, and it's again, it's that change from banks of desks through to what's the purpose of offices. And I think, I don't think there's a business out there that can say, yeah, we've got the answer. We know of a number of initiatives where some big businesses are sitting there thinking, well, what do we need our offices for? And what a great thing that everybody's thinking about this. Where is it going to land? I think is not decided and it will be open. And we're in a bit of a fast evolving Darwinian space where the the offices that become fitter will become more of the norm. And I think, so I think we're going to see some experimentation. I think people like the co-working spaces, the WeWorks of this world, were kicking this off a few years ago about much more social space, much more collaborative working spaces. But I think you've got some big office spaces that are going to start embracing that kind of, um, that kind of behaviour. I know us, for example, we're taking desks out and we're putting co-working um, spaces, places where we can collaborate and talk and meet and workshop together um, um, is becoming much more important to us. We'd mentioned it already in terms of, uh, you know, what's good for the planet being sustainable. What's needed to make a city sustainable? And I know you've done a project in San Francisco and probably elsewhere as well. So, you know, what are the kind of key things that we ought to be, again, looking at to make the post-pandemic world in terms of cities sustainable? Well, that's not a small question. Um, (laughs) Our area really is how people move and flow. Um, So in that area, um, it's about shared transport. um, It's about transport as a network. It's about making it so easy to travel around in these shared modes that it gives people freedom to move because really that's what I think we want as people, um, as society. We want that freedom without damaging the planet. And we can control the sources of energy that drives those around, but the efficiency is just way off the scale, way off the scale. Um, and, and, it, and they're hard work. Uh, yeah, the vision that we've got for this smart city is they're not hard work. <laughs> it's like programming your sat-nav and just guiding you along. You don't mind if you're going to be 10 minutes late in a traffic jam because you're going to get there and it's telling you what time you're going to get there. Again, it's very human. We don't care about that 10 minutes as long as it's not a surprise. Tim, are there cities that you think have done this fairly well that, um, that you've uh, looked at or worked with and thought, actually, you know, they do get the movement well. They are, they are positioning themselves well in the sustainable space. Uh, absolutely. Some are ahead of others, but I don't think many are going far enough, fast enough. Um, I think, boringly to keep mentioning it, but London is still viewed as the city that has connected more of its transit than anywhere else. We're working with Toronto. We have been for the last five years, the greater Toronto area, and it's got 10 different transit systems. They don't fit together. Jumping from one to another is is very difficult, yet people want to work in all different parts of the region. Uh, and for them, the way in which... Um, Transport for London connects, buses, rail services now, um, tube um, and the road, road, the main roadways is, is quite revolution, revolutionary. 
you know, if you look, I, I don't have the stats right on me, but the stats for the, the increase in the bus ridership because they, they connected that network was, was astonishing. You know, buses in London carry twice the number of people on the tube. And I think what the government's doing now is they're using a model of how that is structured for the new Great British Railways, which I think is actually a wise move because Transport for London control the information. They control the bus route numbers. They control the information that you get at the bus stops. They put the operator into a behind-the-scenes role. You look at it, the actual operator is on the side of the bus, but they're all London buses. Thinking about sort of beyond London and different cities, so what do you think the government's levelling up agenda needs in this area in order to be successful? I think, um, you know, I'm, I'm not in government but we can obviously, we've got a perspective. A, a huge driver of, of economics in cities is transport connectedness. You know, the government has a big role in enabling that connectedness. Free movement of people, goods, you know, allows economies, places, allows growth, development, um, businesses to operate. That That is, you know, if I was in the government, I'd be, I'd really be investing in transport networks and connecting them. You know, piecing them together, allowing people to jump from one to the other with ease. We did a lot of work in Vancouver and they were building new lines and they were development um, hotspots. They'd say they're going to put a train station in and huge numbers of developments would pop up around that train station. You know, transport, and, and TfL knows this, they're, they're a big driver of local, um, local economies. Mm. And I think that's why you've got HS2, why you've got Crossrail. There are these big investments. I, I would say those HS2 and Crossrail are enormous pieces of kit. I would prefer to see, in addition, a lot more local work done, a lot more improving local services, making services that exist work better, faster, more, more reliable, more regular. Um, you know, um, easier to access, better stations, better connections, and an information system that allows you to jump from one to the other. Um, and I actually don't think what I'm describing there is is anywhere near as expensive as HS2. But that's got quite a big ticket on it, hasn't it? So, yeah, eighty billion and counting, or something like that. Yeah. yeah. You know, I think um, you know another issue related to this, which I know you've looked at as well, which is what do you think needs to change to make cities more accessible for all? And perhaps your Madrid project might come to mind and, and probably others. To make cities accessible for all, I think you've got to start with really understanding what accessibility is and um, what is needed. Understanding the different needs of everybody. Treating people as individuals and yet they're a group. I know that sounds a bit simplistic, but it's actually realising that you have a role to play to make sure that everybody can access this service. And that is going beyond the legal requirement of our of our um, laws, DDA. It's doing more than that and it's including everybody in how things are designed. That's a really big feature of the work that we're doing in Madrid. Um, and the solutions lie in, there's obviously some very physical solutions, um, but there's a number of information solutions where you can't provide a physical solution because you have a legacy environment, a building that you just can't get rid of the steps. Um, you can't put a ramp in or there is a lift that we can put in, but it's round the back of the building and that's the only place we can put it. That, that's the reality of a legacy of environment of hundreds of year old buildings. 
Um, but at least what we can do is make sure we guide you to it. We make you aware of it. We include you by the fact that, look, uh, you know, it's not right at the front, but it, you can get in and this is the way. Uh, we work with a lot of accessibility groups who, who want to help themselves. Um, they don't want to be treated as special cases. Um, and again, that's, a, that's an inclusive approach. And we think communicating with people is, is a wonderful way of doing that making them aware before they even go of how things work. Just that on something that I thought um, I'd just be curious to get your views on is from an urban sort of planning perspective, why are we still years away from self-driving cars? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, uh, I think I've got two answers to that. One is I I have been following it really. we, We obviously do a lot of work with Google, but we have been following it a lot. It's a lot more complicated than they thought. The human brain happens to be very good at driving and they're a long way off replicating that. So that's the first issue. I think the second issue is, I think there's a debate out there as to what's the real purpose of self-driving vehicles. There's a debate out there that says that if all the vehicles on a motorway, for example, were self-driving, we could have them running in the next five years. Because when they're all self-driving, they can all predict what they're all going to do. But as soon as you put one human in the mix, they've all got to behave as good as a human. So if we had motorways that were all self-driving, the, the vehicles could be flying down there, you know, bumper to bumper at 100 miles an hour, not crashing. Um, but do not let a human touch the wheel. Um, uh, and... I think I think there's a real question. I've read some studies that show that self-driving cars, as envisaged today, are not going to help congestion, are not going to help with the climate um, emergency. You know, the simple fact that you've got a self-driving car, you don't want to park it, you can just keep it driving around the block while you go into the restaurant. That isn't going to help, but that is what might happen. <laughs> so, so they're not necessarily solving a climate problem. I, I don't quite know what problem they're solving. I th- I'm worried that they're solving the problem of, can we do this? It's an Everest. We want to have them. I think what will happen is there will be a time and a place for self-driving vehicles in an environment maybe where it's controlled, the way in which vehicles move around a factory or an airport. You could have little pods moving people to planes. You, you know, um, In that kind of a controlled environment, they'll work. But on our streets, I don't see it. I don't necessarily see it will ever happen. Mm, that's so interesting. Um, I'm just completely curious. You've worked with Google on their campus. What's special about their campus? What's spe- I mean, Google are um, have an incredibly an incredible approach to their campus. They've they've got it's an incredible place to work. They've thought of everything. They're building some amazing new headquarters buildings that we've been working on, which is going to house a few thousand of their their key teams. Google are are, are a fantastically interesting organisation in terms of how quickly they move and how quickly they evolve. For a large organisation, the size that they are now, they're incredibly agile. But the challenge for us has been to devise a wayfinding system that can adapt how quickly that they change. I guess you're not going to share more, so I won't push you. <laughs> Just a couple of final <laughs> thoughts around uh, 
sustainable cities of the future, um, what we might be looking at. If you had to describe for us, um, you know, what a sustainable city of the future, you know, will look like or what you hope it will look like and what's different than what we have now, it'd be great to hear that. I think I've talked about some of that. I think, obviously, sources of power, which is not really my area, you would hope that that has really transformed and that solar fusion power will have kicked in, that we're, you know, electric as a way of delivering that power has, is available everywhere. It's just, well, of course, we've all got electric vehicles, you know, you would expect. Um, the, the heating of our homes is more efficient and, again, driven by sources of energy that are not uh, carbon producing. Um, in terms of uh, the things that create the the um, the carbon footprint at the moment, um, I would hope that we would still feel really free that we would be able to. Uh, you know, I'm a big believer in um, internationalization and traveling to foreign lands as much as possible. The more I've understood different cultures and different societies, I think the more open I am to the differences the more open I am to understanding what is different about the Middle East, what is different about Asia, how different the US is to Europe. Um, they speak the same language as the as the British, but, you know, they are not the same people. Um, and the East Coast are not the same as the West Coast. And, you know, there's, of course, there's the nuances. That's what makes these societies, I think. And the more that we travel and that we understand each other, the the less there are conflicts and the more there is collaboration and the greater we can we can create things. Um, so I'm a big believer in that. I wouldn't, I'd hope that we found ways to do that that aren't going to damage the planet. Um, and I'd hope that in the cities of the future that we are spending time on the things that matter to us. See, what are cities? That they're brought together because people like to congregate. Yes, Industry has created the need to congregate people, um, but humans, like we, we operate in groups. We're 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 tribal creatures. We we want to feel part of communities. I'm I'm concerned some of our technology at the moment, and it things change very quickly in technology. But I'm concerned that some of our technology is actually distancing ourselves from people down our street. I, I quite like how the pandemic in my area has connected us to the farm shops and the local restaurants that we wanted to make sure that they survived. So they offered a takeout service and we, we kept doing it and going, yeah, we, we don't need to go. You know, and I feel a, a better connection to my community because of the pandemic. And I, I feel like, well, it's my community. I feel that's a good thing. I feel warm. And I think that's because as humans, we... We enjoy that. So I, I'm, I think there's going to be a resurgence in communities and physical communities. We've done the online communities a bit and there's a limits to them. They're great. We can have friends on the other side of the planet and stay in touch. That's great. But I also need my local community. And, and I think that requires physical spaces. It requires spaces where we meet, spaces that we can share, events that we can talk to each other about, not just um, Instagram them. Um, but actually be there together. I think that will, um, I think that's going to, going to endure. Within spaces, within public spaces and offices, what do you think the future might hold in a post-pandemic world? I, I think I'd hope so. I think some public spaces are just a bit forgotten. Um, 
And I'd, I'd hope that they're going to be more animated, more things happening, temporary sculptures, pop-ups, um, reasons to be there. And, and then all the things that come around that. You know, you, you go into a city centre and there's a whole load of, uh, where we live, there's a, a shopping area where they're, they're, they're obviously, they've sat down and thought, well, how do we get people back? And they're thinking up all sorts of different things to do and to involve everybody. And I go there and I walk around and you can see what they're trying to do. And then there's people just hanging about and going, well, what's all this? They're interested. And I think the whole shopping centres of just being a place to go shop is changing into an experience centres. You know, I'm going to go and experience what it's like to be here. I'm going to have a day. Um, we're going to go and have lunch and we're going to go and walk around shopping and browse a little bit and we're going to go and see something. You know, it's much more of an event and um, city centres need to think about how they are... They're more animated. They're more... They are what you can't get online, physical things that are experiences that, that are real. Finally... What's your favourite city for movement? And what's your least favourite city for movement? <laughs> you know, I go around taking photographs of everything as I'm travelling everywhere, just re recording it. Um, my For movement, um, I think my least favourite city, because I really think it should be brilliant, is, is actually um, the Bay Area. Um, transit accounts for 5% of travel in the Bay Area. And if you go anywhere you need to get an uber and i just don't like doing that so it's um i wish i had more freedom to use transport there um what's my favorite I, one of my favorite cities is um i think is is berlin and i like cycling around berlin it's quite flat so that's quite good <laughs> that always helps how interesting san francisco bay area given the proximity of silicon valley and sort of the information industry perhaps that's a conversation for another time but it's been so absolutely interesting to talk to you thank you very much tim fendley founder and creative director of applied and thank you all for tuning in i'm linda Yu, and you've been listening to intelligence squared business <laughs>